All right, welcome everyone. Glad you all are here. Um, tonight, we're transitioning into the Temple of Love, and we're going to be talking about romance. We're going to start with a video uh, about a young lady that uh, had a lot of confusion growing up, uh, wanted love and searching for love in all the wrong places, so to speak. So uh, we'll start that and then uh, get on with class. There are gods of war within each of us. They battle for the throne of our hearts and much is at stake. For whichever god is victorious wins control over us and ultimately determines our destinies. And this is why the Bible says so much on the subject of idolatry. It may not seem that relevant to us, but behind the sin you're struggling with, behind the discouragement you're dealing with, behind the lack of passion and purpose that you're living with is a false god that is winning the war in your hearts. And until that god is dethroned, you will not have victory. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37, that the greatest of all the commands is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So let me ask you, is it the Lord that you love that way? Or is it someone else, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a child? When our love for someone else is greater than our love for God, then we are guilty of idolatry, and those other relationships don't work the way they were designed to. From the time we are young, we are taught to bow down to the God of love, especially romantic love. It is held up as the ultimate human experience. It is the subject of countless books. It has inspired beautiful works of poetry and art. It is the plot line of innumerable movies. And we take this idea of meeting that special someone and living happily ever after, and we bow down. I long to feel loved, but I started to feel this, this desperation that I needed to fill this desire to be acceptable. I began to, to worship a sense of love and acceptance. I experienced sexual abuse, which was um, very confusing. It really, it really hurt me, and now it was dangerous to be a girl. Ever since I was little, I longed to be a boy, and I really rejected my gender. I definitely put on the masculine and, and really denied anything that was feminine. And I think a really core belief that came out of that struggle for me uh, was I really felt like a mistake, like I was trapped in a wrong body, a mistake. I didn't paint the nails, I didn't do my hair, I didn't get all excited about the new, you know, heartthrob on TV or in a music video. That wasn't my world. My world was confusion. My world was caught in between. Short hair, rough, tough, tomboy, super athletic, I loved playing sports. I think when I think back to that little girl, she was lost. She was lost and confused and really broken. She didn't, 
she didn't know it. She just knew that something wasn't right. Something wasn't okay. There was a really strong belief that rooted in me, and that is I am not valuable. What I didn't know was that I was created for love. I was created to, to be loved and to love others. But when I was so desperate and alone and, and felt so much shame around my own gender, I started to feel this, this desperation that I needed to, to fill this desire to be acceptable, to be loved. In that desperation, I didn't know how to go about that in, in healthy ways at all. A pattern for my abuse taught me to get attention was to sexualize myself with the boys, very physical and, and sexualized, and, and that was just reinforcing my wounding. And with the girls, that is when they started to become the mystery for me. I would look at them and say, oh, I long to, to be accepted by them. I long to be loved by them. And it, that's when attraction started for me with the same sex. There's ultimately within each of us this emptiness, this void that can only be fulfilled and satisfied by loving God and by experiencing his love for us. When that love is absent, we will inevitably try to satisfy that emptiness with something or someone else, but ultimately these things just prove to be cheap substitutes. Whatever satisfaction they bring, it's short-lived. Trying to fill the emptiness of our hearts with a love for anything other than our creator, it's like trying to satisfy your thirst by drinking salt water. It may numb your thirst for a moment, but it isn't quenched, and soon it will return stronger than before. False gods will try to win the war in your life by promising something that they can't deliver. They'll promise pleasure, but deliver pain. They'll promise happiness, but bring heartbreak. They promise fulfillment, but they leave you feeling more empty than ever. So I had these attractions with the same sex, and that is when the fantasy started for me of wanting to be loved by a woman and by a girl. And I started to act out, not with girls, but in the quietness, in my aloneness, when I'm all by myself. And that's when my pornography started. It's a very dark place. It's a very dark place where those lies scream the loudest that you are a mistake and you are not valuable. And this is as good as it gets. So be desperate enough to attach yourself to this and try to get intimacy here. Try to get connection here. Try to get love here. Try to feel something here. And that was in secret. Nobody knew of that struggle, which in turn made it even more difficult to connect with girls in a healthy way because I'm sexualizing them in my quietness. But the fantasy never satisfied. They never satisfied. So when I would sexualize myself with the boys, um, I, really, I really believed that if I give you this, then in turn, 
you will love me and you will protect me and you will you will be with me and and that was not the case in the moment it could even feel good just that connection of sexualizing the needs um, but in the end did they stay with me did, were they truly interested in loving me and I think that reinforced this belief of you are not valuable because I will take from you and I will use you and, and I will not care about you. And it just reinforced those negative beliefs for me that I'm not valuable and that is my role with guys. And I believed it. There's a passage in Romans that talks about how God gave them over he gave them over to their shameful lusts. And he's talking about idols. And he's talking about how we go to other gods. That was my world. Filled with shame. Filled with shame. And coming out in these lustful ways. Call it addiction. Call it sexualizing my needs. They were idols. One of the greatest lies we can believe is that if we just found that special someone out there and fell in love, our lives would finally be complete. In fact, not long ago I was on this website that listed the top 10 most romantic movie lines of all time. According to this website, the number one most romantic line in a movie was from the movie Jerry Maguire. You might remember the scene where Tom Cruise's character gives this impassioned speech to Renee Zellweger's character, and he ends his speech with, you complete me. And that's the lie this idol wants us to believe. But the truth is, if there were a Jerry Maguire too, and I'm not suggesting that there should be, but if there were, you would find that she no longer completed him and he had moved on to someone else in hopes of finding completion from her. We were made for God. Only he can complete us. When we give our love to another, the Bible teaches that God is jealous for our hearts. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel used an analogy that's really pretty hardcore to describe what idolatry feels like to God. When we take our affection, our attention, and our hearts and give it to anything other than God, it's like we're having an affair. Some of you have experienced the pain of unfaithfulness, and those of you who have gone through that, you know those wounds of betrayal, and you know it's hard to imagine a worse feeling. And God says to his people through the prophet Ezekiel that when they worship false gods, he says you are giving yourself and your gifts and all of your best to these lovers. And so the language of spiritual adultery is used throughout scripture to describe how God feels about our idolatry, that he is a betrayed lover. But here is a beautiful truth. He doesn't just walk away from us. He fights for our hearts. In fact, he went so far as to die for them. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were giving our hearts and love to another, God sent his son, Jesus, to show his love for us. God chose to pursue me, even when I wasn't interested. I didn't believe there was a God. And at this point in life, I'm in high school, so it's late high school, junior year, and there was a point when I was really getting desperate 
to finding answers to having a reason to live. A teacher comes into my life and he began to show me the love of Christ. And he showed me how to relate in a healthy way. And he was so patient and so kind. And even in moments when I wanted to reject him and blow off the whole God thing, he was very patient. He didn't take that personal at all. He began to pray for me. We began to have discussions about God. And he introduced me to Christ. I remember showing up at my teacher's church. And I drove all the way across town just to go to this church. And this teacher and his wife, his family, was sitting in the back row waiting for me to come whenever that day was. I remember going home that evening and and that's, and that's when I cried out to God. That's when I said, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you're real. I don't know if this whole thing is legit. <laughs> All I know is that I need a God to save my life. And, and that's where I started. It was, it was a very simple, very simple decision, but that was huge. That was a turning point for me to where in the first, first time in my life, I felt a reason to live. And I began to care what God thought. A year later, I was at a Christian college. We were at a chapel service, and this particular speaker started to talk about the effects of sexual abuse. All these memories that I'd shoved to the deepest corners of my soul began to come to light, and I lost it. I believed in God now, but my behaviors, the sexualizing, my addictions at a Christian college was still there. It was just more secret. And I realized, I need help. I need so much help right now. And that's when I started to pursue God. So I reached out to his church, and I started meeting with this dear, godly woman. And she started to counsel me for the next four years. And she just walked with me, and she showed me truths about who God is. And I began to ask God, God, how do you see me? Because I have a lot of ideas about how I think I am. I'm a mistake. I'm disgusting. I'm the worst that you've created. And what I began to hear back is that, Shannon, no, I made you. And I am not ashamed of who I made. You are my daughter. You're not a son. You're not a boy. You are my daughter. Shannon, you are forgiven. You are clean in my eyes. Those words were like healing balm to an excruciating wound. And the shame began to kind of fall off my body. I began to slowly accept that I'm a girl. I'm a woman. There's so much healing that I've experienced. I sit before you a transformed, restored woman. Have you ever noticed that when you get dressed that if you get the top button wrong on your shirt that none of the others line up? But if you get that one right, then the rest of them just kind of fall into place. It really, the same is true in our relationships. 
when our relationship with God is right, the rest of the buttons just kind of line up. But when that one isn't right, we have all kinds of trouble in our relationships. Oftentimes, our disordered and broken love lives reveal that something or someone in our life is being loved more than we love God. That something or someone has become too important. Ultimately, nothing is more destructive to our love lives than to put love for someone other than God as the priority of our hearts. It puts incredible pressure on whoever we are loving in his place because what are we doing? We're asking that person to be God to us. We want that person to satisfy us and to make us happy and to give us peace. We're asking that person to do for us what only God can do. That's a lot of pressure. Some of you have been in a relationship with someone like this where they look to you to make them happy when they're upset and to give them peace when they're stressed out and to fix your problems and make everything okay again. And you're saying to that person, when you love them that way, I want you to be God to me. That's a lot of pressure on the relationship. Given enough time, that pressure will cause things to break. But when we love God with all of our hearts, when we get that top button right, it allows us to love and to be loved by others in a way that brings incredible satisfaction. If I could speak to a teen who is currently struggling the way that I struggled, I would say your behaviors that you think you're trying to get love by, they are wrecking you. You are not defined by what you do. You are not disgusting. You are not unforgivable. You are not a whore. You are beautiful. You were made by an amazing creator who is not ashamed when he looks at your face. He loves you more passionately than you can ever imagine. And he wants to love you. He wants to heal you. Will you let him? Will you let him heal you? I don't know what your love life looks like. I guess I'm wondering if maybe all the heartbreak and disappointment has created within you a thirst for something different, something real. There's a story in the Gospel of John where we read about a woman who was married four times. When she meets Jesus, she's living with a man that's not even her husband. But there's this really beautiful way that Jesus introduces himself to her. He describes himself as the living water, and if she drinks, she will never thirst again. You see, ultimately, Jesus is the only one who truly completes us. Any thoughts? Some of these videos are kind of hard to watch, aren't they? Our culture holds up romantic love almost as a, one of the greatest and noblest pursuits that we can have. And we're led to believe that the need for romantic love 
is built into every one of us and that we instinctively yearn for that feeling, that tingly feeling of falling in love. And the message to those who aren't married, or at least dating someone, is that you won't be content or complete until you find the right person that you're in a relationship. And even at church, sometimes a single person gets the impression that they're somehow incomplete. We hear well-meaning people say things like, if you want to find someone wonderful, you need to be someone wonderful. And basically just reinforcing that uh, there's something wrong with you if you're not in a relationship. And if you think about it in our culture, uh, pop culture, you think about how many songs talk about this kind of love or how many movies or books or TV shows I mean, we're inundated with this kind of message that we must be in a romantic relationship to be complete. I'm going to read a little excerpt out of the book that I thought was very, uh, very good. And I'd never, I'd never really given this a whole lot of thought, honestly. It says, here's a surprising thought. Life was never meant to be all about romantic love. Much of what we think of as romantic love was actually an invention of Western culture, something that didn't take hold until the Middle Ages. C.S. Lewis, one of the world's great classical scholars, wrote a study called The Allegory of Love. In it, he shows how troubadours during the medieval times popularized this hearts and flowers concept of love between a man and a woman, and it simply took hold of our part of the world. As a matter of fact, he wrote that he believes that this development had a greater impact than the Protestant Reformation. It caused us to believe that the great purpose of life is the pursuit of an emotional, dramatic, passionate, romantic love. It's not as if romantic affection itself didn't exist before that. Go read the Song of Solomon in your Bible if you doubt that it did. But romantic love is the great quest and obsession Something we must have or be miserable is a human cultural invention. So, as we look at this, and I, and, and I guess I want to reinforce right off the top here that, that I believe romantic love is a good thing. I mean, it's a gift from God. It's when we make it essential to our happiness that it becomes a God to us. And I want to turn to tonight to Genesis, the 29th chapter, and it's kind of a sad story. Um, starting in uh, the second half of verse 14, we'll just read the, the rest of this chapter, and uh, It says, after Jacob had stayed with him, so this is the story of Jacob has gone to uh, Paddan Aram to stay with his uncle Laban, and he'd met his daughter Rachel and had, had watered the sheep, and so now he's coming to Laban's house. It says, after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. 
Leah had weak eyes. Not sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. But Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpha to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. That would have been nice to know before, wouldn't it? <laughs> Finish this daughter's bridal week, then, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Pausing there, you look at Jacob's behavior here. I mean, he obviously was in love with Rachel from the beginning, uh, as soon as he saw her uh, watering the sheep. And, and that was what all he could think about to complete himself, to be happy, was having Rachel as his wife. And what the one that I look at and feel kind of bad for is, is Leah, because it's like kind of had to trick her onto somebody to get her married, and then she's uh, she gets her a week with her husband, and then he gets another wife, and so it's it's kind of a sad situation for her and. And it's kind of reinforced here in the next few verses about her misery um, as it relates to her husband. So in verse 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. So she's basically going from being loved by her husband to finally just being attached to him. And then she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. <clears throat> so when we look at, look at what, what's happened to Rachel here, or to Leah, um, 
This time I will praise the Lord. So finally, she has kind of gotten it, I think. She's taken her husband off the throne of her heart and put God there. Because before, she's, she's trying through having children to be loved by her husband. And finally, she's saying, that's not going to happen, so I'm going to praise God. And so she took her husband off the throne of her heart uh, and put God in his rightful place. And she... <clears throat> So, so if we think about times in our own life when um, we've had our hearts broken by some, by some rejection or something, um, maybe that's where we should turn, to praise the Lord. And Leah chose to find her identity, value, and hope in the lo- love of God, and it took the rejection of her husband for her to get there. In Corinthians 7, um, 1 Corinthians 7, this is a a chapter basically dedicated to um, husbands and wives. But when we get down to uh, verse 32, I want us to kind of look at uh, some of Paul's admonition uh, to us. He said, I would like you to be free from concern, An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So, so Paul is saying here that if, we're not, if you're not married, you have more time to give to the Lord, a, a whole heart dedicated only to him and not uh, divided allegiance. Uh, and don't misunderstand. Marriage is good. Uh, God designed it and we should be looking to love our spouses and, and be romantic towards them. I mean, if you know that they like something, do it for them. If you know that they don't like something, don't do that. I mean, do the things to get along and, and show that you love the other person. The void in the human heart is God-shaped, not mate-shaped. And so loving God with all of our hearts is what comes first. That's what puts everything else in its proper context. If we choose to love a mate like he talked about in a video, love a mate in the way that you complete me. I I need you to, uh, to be my savior or whatever the case might be. Then we've gotten our top button wrong and so the rest of our relationships are going to suffer for that and so God is first and so when we love him then the love that we have for our spouses and our children and our siblings and our parents and all that falls into the proper place when we put a love for someone else ahead of God's then that relationship doesn't work the way it was designed to work
I want to ask a few questions and see if we can maybe get a little discussion going on it. Um, Sometimes I think this kind of class isn't prone to good discussion because it's like, if I comment, I'm going to convict myself here. (laughs) That's why I've I've felt this whole time. Um, One of the questions is, uh, and this is probably one to to kind of keep to ourselves maybe, but are you disappointed in your love life? And, and why, um, why is that? Uh, are you loving someone more than you should or maybe not loving them as you should? Um, and it's easy when, when my happiness depends on what you do for me, that puts a lot of pressure on you, right? Regardless of our relationship, if, if you're responsible for my happiness, I'm, I'm not going to sign up for that task, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Who do you sacrifice the most for? A spouse? A child? A parent? And it's not that those sacrifices are bad. In fact, God calls us to sacrifice for our families. Who is it that completes you? You can say God. I'll take that answer. <laughs> has anyone in here that you want to share had a had an occasion where that you tried to um, look to someone else for completion now, as a widow you find out there is nobody to complete you you complete yourself you and God you don't look for somebody else to complete you Right. Too bad you have to wait till you're old to figure that out, isn't it, Stella? Older. I don't know that I ever looked for somebody to complete me. I mean, it was nice to have a really good husband and everything, but I don't feel like, feel like he completed me or who I was. Right. Good. And that makes a relationship work better when that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Never is. I want to close with this uh, reading here. And this is a, a little section in the chapter. It says, Idols are defeated not by being removed, but by being replaced. The God of romance came in and swept us off our feet. We fell head over heels for such a God. The music was playing, our hearts were pounding, our palms were sweating. Life was like a really corny, really wonderful movie that comes on TBS late at night. We were in love with love, with the idea of a soulmate, someone custom made for us. The two of us would create our own world and lock everyone else out. We would complete each other's sentences, laugh at each other's jokes, and stare into each other's eyes. But something went wrong. 
Once the giddiness wore off, we discovered that human beings are no more or less than human beings. And ultimately, human beings fall miserably short of being God. No human being, we discovered, can meet all our needs. No human being deserves that much pressure. But Jesus can do it. Jesus, our identity. He was wonderfully, it was wonderfully liberating to break free from the shackles of finding who we were in the one person who could define us for what it meant to be alive. Jesus once said, there is no greater love than the one who will lay down his life for a friend. And then he proved it. So the way that we tear down, or the way that we defeat the idols is by putting Jesus in his proper place. Jeff. Uh, I don't know how many people are, are watching The Chosen, but the, the character Mary Magdalene in that is a, an excellent example of what we're going to talk about here. The way they played her in that. Right. And, and she was still incomplete in, in looking, but, but she finally came around to making Jesus her God. Okay. So the movie Chosen recommended for the character of Mary Magdalene, if nothing else. Thank you. Anything else? You're free to visit. Thank you all for being here. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.